Tonight, we'll join designer and writer Ingrid Fattel Lee and Debbie Millman for an intimate discussion on Ingrid's first book, Joyful, the definitive guide to finding and creating more joy in the world around you. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this episode, Debbie talks to designer and writer Ingrid Fattel Lee about joy. It's paradoxical. It's like by forgetting about happiness and just thinking about joy, we find ourselves happier. This interview was recorded in February of 2019 in front of a live audience at the New York chapter of the AIGA. Here's Debbie with a word from our sponsors, followed by the interview. I'd like to thank two of the patrons that help make Design Matters possible. Is your team designing an app from scratch? Rethinking the look and feel of your brand? Maybe taking on something massive like transforming your brand's entire customer journey? Well, don't do it the old way, passing numberless one-off comps through endless emails. Instead, do it all in one place. Do it in Adobe XD. Now, for free, with the new starter plan. Adobe XD combines the ability to both design, prototype, and share in a single solution. Its combination of creativity and productivity lets your teams eliminate bottlenecks and simplify workflows. They can now create an interactive prototype and then share it with teammates and reviewers in a single place. It keeps up with today's creative demands by letting your team work when and where they want across Windows, iOS, the web, and more. Adobe XD has helped big brands change the way they create and review prototypes at a large scale. So don't do it the old way. Use Adobe XD, the design platform for the future, available today for free. For more information, visit xd.adobe.com today. Wix.com puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? Ingrid, so nice to see you again. I had the really distinct honor of interviewing Ingrid a couple of months ago at the Chicago Ideas Festival, but they only gave us a wee bit of time. And so now I get to ask all the really tough questions. Five years ago, five years ago on February 4th, 2014, you posed a question on your blog, The Aesthetics of Joy, which is phenomenal. And I'd like to ask you the question that you posed. You said, you asked, asked, do we have a universal right to joy? What sparked that question, and how would you answer that now? 
Wow. Um, I know, we're going right in yeah, there. Yeah, right in. We did the warm-up in Chicago. Right in. Going right yeah. in. Um, the question was sparked by a conversation with someone who really made me think about how joy is experienced um, by people at all sort of levels of the socioeconomic spectrum. Because I think we often think of joy as this luxury in life, this extraneous thing. Yet framing it as the question about a universal right, I mean, I knew that it was a universal feeling, right? We all feel joy. Um, but what if, if my hypothesis at the time and sort of the thesis of my book that our surroundings are an important factor in what brings us joy, if that's true, then the inequities that we find in the way that our surroundings are constructed could actually um, jeopardize some people's ability to feel joy. And so I started wondering for myself, do we have a universal right to joy? And I think we do. And I think that if we take the perspective that it's on everyone individually to create joy for themselves and we're personally responsible for it and we have to just figure out a way to do that no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, I think that is irresponsible, that we've actually sort of let people down. Um, and that, you know, when you look at many of the buildings and the places that people in poverty are sort of left to inhabit, um, and that, you know, many of these things are constructed with an attitude of you don't get to have the nice parts, right? We're not going to put nice plants and we're not going to paint colors. We're just going to put brick and, you know, metal and make it really plain and simple um, because that's all you deserve, right? Then I think that we're making an equation between joy and aesthetics and saying that those things are things that we have to earn, that we have to deserve, and that they're not a universal right. And so by posing that question, I think I was hoping to spark a conversation around how we bring joy and joyful aesthetics back to some of those places. How do you define joy? I tend to go with, a, try to go with the scientific definition of joy, um, which is an intense momentary experience of positive emotion. Um, and so it's different from happiness because happiness is something we measure over time, it's broader. And so we evaluate our happiness based on a lot of different factors in our lives. Uh, you know, how we feel about our work, uh, whether we feel like we have a sense of meaning or purpose in our lives, um, how socially connected we are, all of those things go in into like our, our happiness. But joy is much simpler. It's more immediate, it's more visceral. Um, and we can really you know, measure it through physical expressions, smiling and laughter and things like that. So for me, it's about these small moments. Interesting that you, you take it immediately to joy versus happiness because in that yeah. same blog post, you go on to state that you don't believe that people have a universal right to be happy. And while our Declaration of Independence grants a right to pursue happiness, you state that the pursuit hardly guarantees achievement. And I think that a lot of people forget that. You really have to earn your happiness in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but you then go on to say that in the case of happiness, pursuing it might actually chase it away. 
pursuing happiness might actually chase it away. So I wanted to ask you about that. Why, why do you feel that way? Why do you believe that? I think that we associate happiness often with really big milestones in life. Um, and a lot of those milestones are not in our control. Um, and I think that sometimes even the ones that are in our control, the act of pursuing, the actions we take in pursuing happiness often sideline joy. Mm. So in what way? In what so way? for example, like going, going so, wide open. So if we're, uh, if we go to work and we think, okay, if I get this promotion, I'm going to be happy. This is like a common thing that we do, right? We say, I just need to get to this thing and then I'm going to be happy. We, we see happiness so often as a future thing. It's often not a thing that we have now. It's like, oh, I'm going to be happy when I find the right partner, when I um, have a baby, when I have grandkids, whatever. All these things that we think are going to make us happy often live in the... I often think of it as like that old phrase about your ship coming in. It's like we're always sort of looking out to the horizon for our ship to come in. Well, many times the actions we do, we take to achieve these goals... Um, make us sort of put joy off. We postpone joy. Um, so if we think, oh, I need to get to that promotion to be happy, then we'll often that leads to a workaholism. That leads us to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to skip this uh, really wonderful um, party that my friend's throwing, this wonderful celebration or this afternoon at the botanical garden or whatever it is. I'm going to skip those things and I'm going to just work straight through. And sometimes, you know, that's great. You're working in service of a goal and it makes you, you know, that does further your happiness. But often those little joys get lost along the way. Um, and I think, you know, when we look at the science of joy, it suggests that these little moments actually do start to work toward our happiness. So it's paradoxical. It's like by forgetting about happiness and just thinking about joy, we find ourselves happier. So I have a theory I wanted to present to you. I've done a lot of work on what it means to be happy or to achieve happiness. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've discovered as humans, we are metabolism machines. So we metabolize not only our purchases, our technological devices, but we also metabolize our happiness. We can, we are regulation machines. And so in as much as we might feel happy with a big giant flat screen TV or the promotion or the raise or the new shoes or the new love over time, those experiences and those feelings metabolize. And so while we might be in a position where in the early stages of love, we can't get enough of each other, three years later, you're complaining about how the person swallows. So, you know, we've all been there. Don't deny it. Um, <laughs> but, but, so I was thinking a lot about joy. I was thinking a lot about your theories about joy and reading your book for the second time. I was thinking a lot about Marie Kondo and does something spark joy. And I realized I have this little jar in my shower stall. It's something that I keep my shaver in. And it's a little white cup, really. And on it, it says, optimist. Now, I've had this for years. I have not metabolized my joy yet for this object. Every time I look at it, I smile. So my theory is that we metabolize happiness, but we don't metabolize joy. Joy continually renews. And I wanted to know what you thought of that. Not, not bad, right? Not bad. Such, 
<laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you. It's such a beautiful way of putting it. And um, I'm, I'm glad that you asked that. So I, you know, the, recently on Instagram and Facebook, there's been this 10-year challenge and you're supposed to look back 10 years and see what you were doing. And I realized that 10 years ago, I was doing the thesis proposal for this work. Um, and I looked back and I read it again. And in that thesis proposal, I wrote that joy is a renewable resource mm. for, for, for our emotions. It's like, I, I think I said, it's like sunshine for the senses. It never runs out. And I really do believe that. And I think, you know, what you're talking about, scientists often use the term hedonic adaptation. Mm. This, or the this, treadmill. Or the treadmill or hedonic treadmill. And the idea is that we adapt to things and we sort of, again, we, we come back to some homeostasis with our surroundings. And that's really good when it comes to the bad things in life because obviously you wouldn't want to, like, if you have a, a partner that snores, you wouldn't want to, you know, you, it's good that you adapt to that over time. There are certain things... Synthesizing that are, happiness, yes. as Dan Gilbert would say. Yes, yeah. it's really good that you, um, that you adapt to that. But, um, but on the positive side, it can be challenging because there are many good things in life that we do adapt to. And I think that what you point out, this, this one thing that you don't seem to adapt to, where you don't metabolize its joy... I think that that hasn't really been studied properly yet. I don't think, I think that there's a, tends to be a view that we, we adapt to all material things. And I actually think there are certain things that we don't adapt to. And I don't think that the science has caught up on that yet. And it's, I think it's pretty remarkable to consider that joy is a renewable resource in our lives. And that that same thing that might spark joy five years ago might continue to spark joy in the present day where we all know that our purchases or love or hunger or feeling full, all of those things are things that are adaptable. Right. And I think for me at the core of this, like I really wanted to understand this idea of emotional sustainability. Mm -hmm. Like how do we actually create a relationship with our objects, a relationship with our, with our surroundings that is more sustainable, that's healthier, but also that, um, that isn't about this sort of cycle of disposability, that we can find things that are timeless by tapping into these sort of maybe primal, primal impulses that we can actually find something that we know is going to resonate again and again and again. So let's go back a little bit to how you got to this moment in time, how you came up with this thesis, how you wrote this book. Um, I want to start by going back just a little bit to March 24th, 2012, Okay, the day of your 32nd birthday mm -hmm. and the day you had some tingling in your mm -hmm. feet. Um, you put off getting it checked up on, you were worried that it might be mm -hmm. bad news and you didn't want to face it. Mm -hmm. You were very busy with work. Talk about that particular time in your life and how it led you to the first steps in taking this adventure into understanding the science of joy. Well, wow. That was a, yeah, it's a time that I never like want to go back to in my mind because it really was, it was a period of stagnation. And I think we all go through those periods, right? Where you, um, and I think I, in many ways, I had been neglecting this work. So I had, you know, I'd set off on this journey in, I guess, 2000 and 
2008 it sort of began, and then 2009 was when I really dove into it. And then I, um, I got the most amazing job offer on the same day that I presented this work as my thesis. And so I went to work at IDEO, and it was the job offer I was never going to turn down. Um, but it meant that I was working on this on the side. And for a while, I was just full steam ahead. And then over time, I put it on hold, like you put so many things on hold to really focus on what I was doing day to day. And I think it was just a period when so many things weren't moving forward. You know, I wasn't able to find someone to be with, right? I was sort of dating and having lots of bad dates. And um, I went to the doctor and the doctor was like, maybe it's time to start talking about freezing your eggs, you know? And these like brochures were coming at me and I was thinking, I just, and I was going to wedding after wedding after baby announcements were coming in and I just felt stuck, like life wasn't moving forward. And I had a, a work trip to Ireland that got canceled. And, but you had done a lot of research about this trip. You had really put a lot of time and planning into yeah. extending the trip to do some things for yourself exactly. for the first time in a long time. And then it gets canceled. Exactly. And then it got canceled. And I came home and I was so upset about it. I was like irrationally upset about this trip getting canceled. And I came home and all the tabs were still open in my browser. And I just looked at it and I checked my airline mile balance. And I was like, I'm just doing it. And it was really funny when I went into work after because I was like, I'm going to Ireland. And they're like, wasn't it canceled? And I'm like, I'm going anyway. Like, I have to go. So there. <laughs> I'm going. And so, yeah. And I went. And it was this incredible, I mean, first of all, I allowed myself to rest for the first time in a very long time. And I just took lots of long walks and it was so green. It was so, I mean, Ireland in, it was March, was so incredibly green and it just felt like something came alive again. And that started me thinking about this power of renewal and how our surroundings can actually instill a sense of motion in us when we ourselves feel stagnant. I think psychology puts a lot of pressure on ourselves, uh, on us to initiate that from within. And actually to feel it from without was really powerful. And it did sort of send me back on the course um, of bringing this to life. I'd like to read a paragraph, if you don't mind, sure. about how you describe this experience, because yeah. it's really poignant and, and beautiful. So you said this about the experience in Ireland. Natural environments can restore our emotional resources, refilling the reserves that get depleted in everyday life. This was part of the effect I experienced in Ireland, to be sure. Yet the feeling was deeper and more profound. It wasn't just restoration, but wholesale renewal. Instead of feeling overwhelmed by the disappointment of my unfulfilled wishes, it was like the slate had been wiped clean. And I was starting fresh, right where I was, imperfect, but complete. How and why do you think that happened? I think that certain landscapes have a power, I mean, most many natural landscapes, but I think certain landscapes have a power to elicit this kind of renewal. And I think that um, a lot of it has to do with feeling a sense of motion in the world around us. I think that the man-made world is so static. And I think it's easy in a static environment to feel like everything is the same. Everything is unchanging and it will never change. Mm -hmm. um, and I think so much of, you know, this idea of joy is that joy is 
like a wave. Our emotions are like waves. And I think when we believe that we're supposed to have this constant happiness, that really does us a disservice because this constant happiness, when we actually don't have it, we feel like that's going to be constant too. And yet we know, right, when we're in like a moment of intense joy, it sometimes we can be almost fearful, right? Because we know that it's not going to last forever yeah. and that it does go in waves. And so I think embracing that wave-like quality is really helpful. And when you are at a low, to be surrounded by something that is changing and moving, like that dynamic spring, like everything was coming back to life um, and everything was curving and, and rising um, and feeling that, you can take in that energy. And for me, that energy was what I needed to go back and say, okay, it's a rut. It's not good, but it, it won't last forever. And I did eventually go to the doctor and find out I was okay. Your feet were okay. I was actually just suffering from really severe anxiety that I didn't realize because I was, you know, and actually hearing that you're okay is a great way to ease your anxiety. Yeah, it suddenly puts things in perspective, (laughs) especially if you are fearing the worst. But it's so interesting about seeing emotions as waves. It took me a very long time to realize that when I was feeling down or was feeling depressed, that that didn't mean I was going to feel that way forever. Yes. And in as much as we might not allow ourselves to feel that full joy because we're afraid of what might happen. And so I don't want to crash, so I'm just going to cap it right here. Yeah. The same thing I think can happen with feeling down or depressed that we feel like, well, that's going to last forever. Yeah. So if I allow myself to feel it, I might never escape. When in fact, I think it is, it is cyclical. And unless it's something that does require medical attention, which of course is very serious, sometimes just allowing yourself to feel that balloonness for a while allows it to run its course. Totally. And I think that, you know, what I learned from that experience and really in writing the renewal chapter, the last chapter of the book is really that um, joy, our joy is proportional to our sadness and our ability to feel joy is proportional to our ability to feel sadness. And I mean, you know, Brene Brown talks about how joy is the most vulnerable human emotion. And you were kind of alluding to that same feeling that sometimes we don't want to let ourselves feel the joy. And so we hold ourselves back because we're afraid of what the low will be like after that. I think similarly, we hold ourselves back from sadness. So we numb instead and we find ways to numb so that we don't have to feel the depths of that. Or we get angry instead of sad. Right. Or we do, you know, we find all sorts of other ways to deal with it when actually feeling the sadness is what it's an amplitude it's a question of amplitude and if you if you don't allow yourself this then then it's really hard to reach this yeah i interviewed beth comstock a couple of months ago and she said if you don't allow yourself to fail you will never allow yourself to succeed she said it a little bit mm. better than that but i think that it's still really profoundly true so i want to go back even a little bit further mm-hmm. because you initially studied english and creative writing at Princeton. Mm-hmm. And I think that your thesis was a novel called Life Blooms. Where did you, how did you find that? That is amazing. <laughs> your Scary. mom is sitting here. No. Scary. I'm very, I'm, <laughs> now I'm nervous. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I did want to know if there was ever going to be a way for us to read it. 
your thesis, your novel. Okay. It's so funny that you asked that. I have thought that it would be really good. So it's a really bad novel. I mean, it's like a really naive novel um, because I wanted to write about like 30 some things and I was, you know, I was 21 and I really just didn't know what that was like. I really just wish that I had written about people my own age because it would have been much truer, right? But I had this <laughs> idea and I really, and you know, it's funny because what that book is about, it's, it's about the question, the central question of the book is, can you make art anywhere? Or do certain surroundings influence your art? And it's about a woman who finds herself in a really um, uninspiring setting and she sort of has lost her way. Um, and she... Your whole life. <laughs> and she decides to um, to go to Paris to chase after a photographer who she thinks is going to inspire her. And she finds all this inspiration from the place and then she ends up moving home. Um, but uh, So I've just told you the plot of the novel, so now you don't have to, to read it. Um, but... Uh, but I, I often think that it would be really fun to raid it and do a story about um, something in the future and someone digging out their old novel and oh, bringing great. pieces of it. So maybe one day, I do think, you know, I, so I studied fiction. I think maybe one day I'll come back to fiction, but I do think it would be fun to pull pieces of it back into the world. But I think as a whole, I don't think I want to torture anyone with that. <laughs> now, after your undergraduate education, I believe your first job was as a research manager at a firm called Penn, Schoen, and Berlin Associates, and you first started working in branding. So how did you, I mean, we could see, I could see the leap from creative writing to branding, um, but how did you make that leap? Yeah. Why, why, why branding and positioning and market research? So I went, um, so creative writing, I wrote that novel and I thought, oh my God, I don't want to be a novelist for a living. Oh, okay. So I, I, I turned that in and I was like, this is not what I want to do. Um, so I thought, you know what, I've been really, I mean, growing up, my favorite subjects were creative writing and biology. I've always been like, a, you know, I've always had this love of sort of spanning disciplines. And so I thought, well, I've been really focused on creative writing, I'm going to, I need to go do something with numbers. So I went and I got this job in market research. And what I was doing was I was testing the covers of all of the Condé Nast magazines. So Vogue and Lucky and Glamour. And I was testing them online every month, versions of them to see which ones were the strongest. And we what would did test you learn? Them. Tell well, us everything. <laughs> so, uh, well, on Glamour Sex Sells, um, you've got to have the sex cover line as the, like the biggest cover line. Um, of course, Glamour is sadly now um, past um, Vogue, um, you know, a, a Vogue cover that would do well back in the day was always one that had a little bit of polar. It was a little bit polarizing. So something that um, you know, some magazines you just always want to be likable, right? But Vogue always did best when there were a few people that didn't like it. Um, and so, yeah, really interesting. Um, or like the other thing that I think is really interesting is, um, you know, editors would sometimes look and have like the title in a in a pink typeface or in, a, in an orange typeface and they would think, but I like the pink better. And everyone would say they like the pink better. But when you'd put it in a 
sample newsstand and see what people wanted to buy, orange would do better. Why do you think that is? More vibrant, more intense color. So it's just interesting. I mean, I didn't know that then, but now I think like I think it's the intensity of the color. So I think it's interesting sometimes what we think is going to do well um, doesn't, and, and what people say they like doesn't necessarily translate to what people are going to buy. Absolutely. Um, so Absolutely. yeah, so liking and, and, um, and purchase are totally different things. Um, so I started doing this and I realized that um, what I was doing each month was helping these magazines tell a story about like build the brand, right? Because each magazine cover is a story, is a, a chapter in the story. And so each month what we were doing was trying to solidify and strengthen, you know, what, what that story was, but it was still at the end of the day, just numbers. And what why, I, and why are there always numbers on covers? 683 ways to make him crazy in bed. Because 482 new ways to wear your same shoes. People need to know that there's real meat there. It's like the origin of the listicle. It was still on the cover oh, lines back then, course. you know, but I think we just needed to know that um, there was going to be meat in there, right? So they wanted, people want the numbers. Um, but, but at the end of the day, I was, I wasn't designing covers. I wasn't, you know, I, I, and I really wanted that. I wanted to sort of move closer to the creative side of things. And so, and I was really interested in branding. And at the same time, I decided I wanted to move to Australia because that sounded exciting. And so I moved to Australia and I ended up working for a company that was sort of affiliated in the same, it was all owned by WPP. So it was another WPP company. And I went and I turned up on their doorstep and I basically said, I really want to work for you. And they said, we're not sure we have anything thing for you, but um, let's just bring in um, the head of branding. Just He'll just meet you. And, you know, and I was like, thank you. And he came in and he, he figured out what to do with me. He nice. just, yeah, he thought, okay, well, he knew I was creative because of the writing and he knew that I had some you know, re, like marketing research experience that he could use. And so he thought, well, this is weird, but, and he became a really incredible mentor for me. And he helped me transition fields from market research into branding. And he gave me a syllabus of books to read and I would read them and then come talk to him about them. And he would say, I think I, we want to do innovation work. And I was like, okay, what's that? Give me a book. And then I, you know, I would read about it. Hello, and David Kelly. Yeah. And then <laughs> he would give me books about IDEO and I would read them. And then we would try to do workshops and things like that. Um, so yeah, so that's how I made that transition. And in fact, when I first started doing brand positioning, I used to write character anecdotes. I used to write them because it was a tool that I knew how to use. So I would write about them as if they were a person and I would write these sort of long narratives to help me understand who this brand is and what sorts of attributes it should have. Sort of like method acting. Yeah, kind of. It was like, but but I think what I realized is that it's all about motivation, the whole thing, right? right? Creative writing is all about motivation. You're trying to understand who these characters are and what they're doing and you're making it up, but it has to be real. It has to come from real emotions and real drives. And branding is the same. You have to understand what motivates people and what moves them and what drives them and then why this brand would do that. And so it was all connected, actually. After this experience, you worked for some of the most prestigious firms in the world. You worked for a time at Red Scout. You worked for a time at Landor. That was Landor. Oh, so it was when you went yeah. to Australia. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. And who yeah. was your mentor there? 
Um, his name is Damien Borchok, and he's still in Australia. He's actually wonderful. Yeah. Really wonderful. I know yeah. him from oh, you do? Omnicom days. <gasps> yes. Yes. He's a gem. Um, 2010, big year for you. What led to that was your deciding in 2007 to go back to school. So what made you decide you needed to go back to school? Here you are working at Landor, arguably one of the biggest and best branding agencies in the world, Mm -hmm. Red Scout, another, and then you decide you want to go back to school to get a master's degree in industrial design. Yeah. Why? Okay. So I'm at Landor and I'm sitting um, next to all these designers. And it was the first time that I really got to work in this interdisciplinary way. And I had some designers who I got really close to and we would work really collaboratively together. But I was always kind of looking over at their screens and going, God, that looks fun. Um, And it is fun. Um, And I just would look over. I mean, they were mostly graphic designers. um, So it's not the specialty I chose, but I thought I want to be able, it, it lit a fire in me. I was like, I want to be able to make things like they do. I want to be able to take an idea that's in my head and not just write about it, but actually make it, make it physical, make it tangible. And so I knew at that point that I wanted to go back to design school. And at that point, I didn't know what kind. I sort of had ideas, but I wasn't sure. Um, and then I went on this trip. I went from Singapore to London overland um, for four months um, after I left Sydney. I was leaving Sydney. I was coming back to the U.S. And I thought, okay, I'm, you know, this is a great opportunity to travel. And so um, I just traveled through all sorts of places. And in the, in the meantime, I was reading about design. I bought all these design books to take with me and I was reading about. And I realized that I wanted to, I wanted something that would let me create things that people could hold or things that people could sit on or things that were um, ordinary everyday things. And I think by watching all these ordinary everyday things in the lives of people sort of all around the world, it was kind of like, oh, this is a, I, I think I'm attracted to universals. And to me, that was like, it was a universal thing that making everyday things was really exciting to me. So you finish your degree, 2010, You get the big fat job, the job at IDEO. Mm -hmm. At the very same time, you're also working with Alan Chachanov to help. You were part of the founding faculty for the SVA master's program Mm -hmm. in products of design. Mm -hmm. So how did did this all happen? How did you graduate? You get the one of the biggest, best jobs on the planet. And then you also start working to develop your own master's program. Yeah. Well, Alan was a professor of mine. So I was very, very lucky to have, uh, his guidance and mentorship. Um, yeah, we stayed in touch and, uh, he said he was starting this new program and he wanted me to figure out how to teach design research in it. And so, yeah, it was a subject that I really loved, this idea of design research, because again, it's all about motivation and emotion and the way that we interact with tangible things in the world around us. So it was really fun to get to teach that. And I actually have some former students here tonight, which is really exciting. Um, Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about IDEO before we start talking more deeply about your book. Mm -hmm. How did your work at IDEO help create a pathway towards the book? You're still an IDEO fellow. So it's been nine years now that you've been a part of the IDEO family. Talk a little bit. I'm actually not anymore. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
transitioned out of that role, but it, but I did for a long time for stay long, involved as a years, yeah. I did years. for a long time stay in IDEO fellow. Tomato, tomato. Yeah. <laughs> um, talk about how that work influenced your thinking about about your book. Yeah, I think people know about the idea of human-centered design uh, and IDEO's sort of coinage of it and instrumental role in bringing this philosophy out into the world. But I think for me, I didn't really understand it until I was in inside. And I think getting to practice it in such a deep way. I mean, I think one of the things that is wonderful about IDEO is you you do get to, you spend a lot of time in people's homes and in their lives and in their fridges and in their medicine cabinets, um, really trying to, un- with their permission, um, trying to understand how design, you know, works in their lives. So it was for me an opportunity to get to see people's emotional engagement with all sorts of things and really get to do it in a, in a really outside my bubble because I think it's hard to get outside that bubble. And so at IDEO, I mean, I was working on things like, you know, designing tools to help people not lose their homes when they get a mortgage, right? So how can they choose mortgages that are not going to leave them underwater later? How? I know. Um, It's complicated, but I think, uh, you know, we actually did design a set of tools that was about helping you understand what you can really afford because most people go and they ask a a lender to tell them what they can afford instead of actually figuring out what they can afford before. And most lenders, um, you know, credit is tightened significantly, but lenders still often tell you you can afford more than you can actually afford. Um, So being able to understand the, you know, educate people on the dynamics of mortgages and things like that. So for example, being able to to sit in Bakersfield, California with someone who has lost their home and understand what that actually looks like. I mean, it's been really interesting with the shutdown this week because I actually did so much work in that space that for me, I'm, you know, I was watching this unfold and thinking about so many people I'd met who I knew, um, you know, in that situation would be ruined for life, ruined for life based on actions had nothing to do with them right. um, because of how difficult it is to understand the financial system and how um, how abstract it's become. Um, and so there are a couple things that came out of that for me. One is just obviously deep empathy and really understanding people and wanting to understand people and their motivations and where things come from. And, and um, so, so that's one piece of it. But also I think this bias toward bringing things back to the physical um, has really... You know, stayed with me. I think one of the reasons in talking about money that money is so challenging is that it's totally an abstraction now. I think that you know we move money around as numbers on screens, and we actually have no sensorial connection to it anymore. You know, one of the things I saw at IDEO was just how many of these things have been removed from the physical world, and how challenging it is for us to understand them because we're sensorial creatures. Yeah, so it sort of left me with that desire to like actually try to nudge us back toward the tangible world even more. Well, I think you do that quite successfully in Joyful. So Ingrid's book is called Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. And it's described as being devoted to a simple, powerful idea that our greatest source of joy is the world around us, that there's a clear link between our surroundings design and our mental health. So when did you first come to realize that connection between surroundings, design and mental health? I think it was after I started researching this topic and I started to see 
papers that started to clarify things that I'd always felt, but I never really knew to be true. So for example, um, this really interesting set of studies, um, neuroscientific studies on what happens when scientists put people into an fMRI machine and they show them pictures of round things and angular ones. And that, you know, when we look at angular objects, a part of the brain called the amygdala lights up. And um, that part of the brain is associated with fear and anxiety. And yet when we look at round things, it stays silent. Um, and so I thought that's interesting, right? That's, that's happening all the time. Um, and yet we were not aware of it. Um, and we live in everything angular. Everything angular. And, you know, but, but it makes so much sense when you start to think about the fact that childhood is totally round, right? And that you have hula hoops and balloons and bubbles and balls and merry-go-rounds and so many things and kids around, you know, they're like rounder versions of adults. Um, and so, that roundness and that the joy we find in roundness, it makes total sense. Um, and so, and then I think, you know, there's other, other areas like, um, all the research on light was really interesting to me because I think now we have such a focus on the idea that, um, blue light is bad for us at night. And I think we're becoming aware that we're not supposed to look at our devices. We'll have insomnia, you know, it'll aggravate our insomnia and that, you know, now researchers are starting to classify, um, graveyard shifts as a carcinogen because of the level to which circadian rhythm disruption actually affects our, our whole system. Um, but I think what isn't talked about is the relationship between the positive relationship between light and our well-being during the day um, and how much that is you know, missing um, from, from most of our sort of indoor environments, that most of our indoor environments are really underlit um, for, for what actually can help uh, sort of get them, you know, when we wake up, we have melatonin, residual melatonin in our systems and, and that sort of degrades when we're exposed to light and that we actually, um, we don't have enough light to do that. And so when you look at, for example, Alzheimer's patients, that studies show that when they change the light bulbs in those facilities and put in broad spectrum bulbs, that um, people are, uh, that there's less cognitive decline and less depression um, among people with Alzheimer's because their circadian rhythms are better balanced and better regulated. Um, or that um, people with sunnier desks, I found this so interesting in a study, people with sunnier desks are more active um, during the day, and at, whether they're at work or not, and they sleep better at night because, again, their circadian rhythms are in better balance. So these things are so subtle, and yet this picture was starting to emerge for me that we are really shaped by our surroundings. Our well-being is really shaped by our surroundings, and no one's telling us about this. But yet... There's so many pursuits of happiness now that are about looking inward instead of looking outward. And things like shape and light and color really do impact us as much as, if not more so than looking deep inside. Yeah. I mean, I think that looking inside is really important too. You know, I would never say it's either or, but I do think that um, because psychology has ignored this for so long, we are left without a dialogue between the two. So we spend, we're, you know, if we, if we go to a therapist, we're usually told to do the introspective work and that's great, but we've sort of lost our understanding of what happens when, you know, you're on a, a, noise, a street corner and someone honks really loudly and you get rattled, right? And then you go into your next interaction and you don't really think about that, but all of the sensations around you are, are impacting you and what you take into the next thing. And so for me, I'm hoping to cultivate more dialogue around that. 
Tell me about chromophobia. What is chromophobia? I think I might suffer from it. <laughs> okay. So chromo- I think a lot of people might. Don't laugh. I think a lot of people in this room suffer a from it. A lot of too. New Yorkers, I think, suffer from chromophobia. I suffered from chromophobia, so I'm a recovering chromophobe. I know, but I am a recovering chromophobe. Um, so tell us what it is. It's a fear of color. Fear of color, and it sounds and like something you wouldn't be afraid of. <laughs> you think I suffer from it? <laughs> is it phobia, or is it just you just... Oh, no, it's phobia. Okay. Yeah, no, it's phobia. I actually feel fluorescent if I wear gray. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do we overcome our chromophobia? Okay, so... I think maybe it helps to just talk a little bit about the roots of chromophobia and why we have it, um, because I think that's what helps us overcome it. So one of the things that I noticed in my research is that consistently color is one of the you know most obvious aesthetics of joy. It's the most salient. Um, and if you look at celebrations around the world, right, you'll always see vibrant color. It doesn't matter where you go. And the costumes will be different and the decorations will be different, but they'll always be color. But... I think what's happened over time is that color has been equated with joy, which has been equated with childishness, with a sense of primitiveness often. So in colonial times, it was associated with primitive peoples. And so in sort of Western cultures, people wanted to distance themselves from. Um, So you have Gota writing in his theory of colors that savage nations... I can can read it. Oh, can you? Okay, good. It's a great quote. I was going to ask you about it. 200 years ago, Goethe wrote this in his theory of colors. Savage nations, uneducated people, and children have a great predilection for vivid colors, but that people of refinement avoid vivid colors in their dress and the objects that are about them and seem inclined to banish them altogether from their presence. And this is what we live with. This is, we have this baggage, this cultural baggage of this attitude. And I think, you know, there's a lot of, at minimum, ethnocentrism in that statement, but really some veiled racism and some veiled um, sexism, not even veiled. Um, And we hold ourselves back from color often because it is associated with all these things or we fear will be associated with those things. And then it becomes hard to find our way back to it. And I think that there's another piece of it too, which is that, um, you know, the historian John Stilgo talks about how people used to be educated on how to look at things, how to look, how to see the color in the world around us. And I think, you know, for all the designers in the audience, and, and most of you are, you probably had a moment when you were in design school where you suddenly, you took color classes and you just felt, oh my God, I can see things I never saw before. And maybe for me, that was especially intense because I came to design late. You know, I was already like, I I had no real training in design before I went back to school at Pratt. And so those first color classes were like wool lifted off my eyes. Um, And I was Joseph Elber's shade squares. Yes. It really felt um, profound to be able to see in this way. It was like a deep seeing into ordinary life. And so I think many of us do not have the education around it. And then we also don't feel like we have permission to use it. And so together those things can be daunting to dive into color. And 
it's so much safer, both socially and um, aesthetically sometimes to sort of stay with neutrals. So if you had one piece of advice, if you wanted to take one small step into a rainbow of color, what would you suggest for those of us that suffer from chromophobia? I always say start small. Um, so start with, uh, there are a few things. So start with, if it's in your home, start with consumables. I think consumables are like the best way to start because you know that they're going to be used up. So candles. I always buy candles instead of buying white candlesticks. I buy them, you know, in bright colors because if I don't like it, it's just going to burn up and then I don't have to worry about it. Um, so that's one thing. Um, also, shop in your home. You probably have color like all over your house that you don't realize you have because it's not aggregated. So that's why I color code my bookshelves because books are a form of color that most people have in their homes. And so that's another thing you can do. Um, and then like if it's what you're wearing, pick something small, shoes, scarf, something that's just an accent. Um, but I know that when people do that, they often start to get so many comments and compliments that it sort of helps build the confidence. So I think oh, always I was, starting I would small. think it was the opposite. Like I don't want to cause oh, more you don't attention. Want a, attention, yeah. right. Well, but, yeah. if you don't want attention, then then that can um, generally it increases the amount of attention you find yourself yeah. getting. But yeah. Um, you've written extensively on the impact design has had on both hospitals and schools, especially where there's been severe trauma in a place like Sandy Hook. Mm -hmm. That You talk a, a bit about a Danish hospital that heals with color. Can you talk a little bit about how different environments can help people improve their state of well-being, a state of mental health, feel safer via the use of color or aesthetics? Sure. So there's, I think this is a, a very emergent space, um, the study of this, but um, there are some really interesting early studies that have propelled things forward. So one was a study at a mental institution. It was a psychiatrist working at a mental health facility, and he found that um, patients with bipolar disorder were discharged sooner when they had east-facing rooms rather than west-facing rooms. And he eventually figured out that it was because of the morning light that they were getting um, being in an east-facing room that influenced them so profoundly. Um, and then uh, Roger Ulrich, um, who has studied the influence of nature and aesthetics on uh, health for a really long time, he did a study um, years ago uh, that showed that people recovering from gallbladder surgery left the hospital sooner when they had a view of a green view out their window as opposed to a, um, a, a brick wall. Um, so there's studies that start, are starting to show that nature, light, and sometimes color can have a positive influence on us when we're trying to heal and when we're trying to learn. Um, similarly, I think in schools, a view out a window is often considered a distraction. And for a long time, teachers didn't want students to have that because they were worried that students would be daydreaming and just sort of gazing out the window. When in fact, research shows that um, students with ADHD, when they have a window to look out of and they look out over a green view, their concentration is actually better. And how come? Why is that? Um, so with nature in particular, there's a, a theory called attention restoration theory. And the idea is that it's passively stimulating. So it's not like aggressively stimulating. It's not like TV. It's not capturing our attention. But when we look at 
natural scenes that they help to restore our attentional capacity. Um, and so this is the capacity that we have to make decisions, to focus, um, to concentrate on focused work, um, deep work. And that gets depleted over time. For some reason, natural textures, scenes, um, help to restore that. And they, they still, researchers still don't know exactly why. There are certain theories. One interesting stream of research has to do with fractals um, and that there are fractals, uh, you know, many natural scenes have fractal qualities um, and that uh, when people look at these types of fractals that it elicits certain brainwave patterns that so are associated. Fibonacci return. Yes, that are associated with wakeful relaxation. Um, so again, it's still being pieced together, but the research shows that certainly natural scenes, light, those things have very clear research behind them. Order is another thing that seems to have very clear research behind it, that when we have um, exposure to orderly scenes, we are not only calmer, but actually our behavior changes. So studies at the University of Chicago show that people are less likely to cheat on a test when they viewed orderly scenes, um, visually orderly wow. scenes, rather than disorderly scenes. So these things, I think, again, they unconsciously influence our attitudes and our behavior and that it's amazing to think that we are not always who we think we are, right? That, that our context can actually change how we show up. Um, and so to me, the idea that we would want to create environments that help people heal, that help people learn, um, that help people in poverty, help move themselves out of poverty by showing at minimum that our surroundings are alive and that they're not inert and dead. One other thing that I found incredibly helpful about your book was the worksheets. So talk a little bit about what made you decide to include the sort of interactive part of the book that people can choose to use very individually. I feel like since we've been talking, uh, we were talking about IDEO, this is like one of the lasting impacts of IDEO is that you're always thinking about how do you make this more active, right? And how do you help people? It, you know, IDEO is so, so well known for how generous um, they are with tools, right? And that they release all of the, so many of the tools that IDEOs use on a daily basis get released to the public for free. And to me, um, I really wanted people to be able to take this forward in their own lives and, you know, if you're designers, to be able to apply it to projects. Um, and so I wanted to create something that actually helps you do that. So I have one more question for you. And it really goes back to the beginning of our conversation when we were talking about renewal. And another quote that I'd like to read uh, of your writing, you write this about the topic of joy and renewal. We find this joy of renewal in many different moments and contexts. Ending an addiction or finding a new faith can provide a sense of renewal, of being reborn into a new life. Near-death experiences can bring renewal, as can the feeling of being given a second chance after a terrible mistake. A common moment of renewal comes from the birth of children or grandchildren, and people often describe the pleasure of rediscovering the world through the naive eyes of a child gaining a renewed flush of wonder at well-worn, at well-worn joys. 
And that whole notion of well-worn joys has stayed with me throughout your book. And so I wanted to ask you, what is one thing any member of the audience can go and do tonight or tomorrow to try and rediscover the world through the naive eyes of a child and try to find some of those well-worn joys all over again. Oh, wow. I think it's such a, points towards such a powerful entry point into this for people. Um, and I think I would just say, um, if you can go back and remember something you loved doing as a child, um, because that's something I've done a lot as part of this process, is just to keep going back and saying, what brought me joy when I was little? And why? And do I do that anymore? Or have I stopped doing it for some reason? I think asking that question can be a portal to rediscovering joy. Ingrid, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us here today. Thank you. Thank you for helping us understand how to create a more joyful experience and world. I want to thank the New York chapter of AIGA with a special big fat shout out to Stacey Panasopoulos, who does everything for everyone and is just an extraordinary force of nature. Ingrid's brilliant book is titled Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. Thank you so much for coming and joining us tonight. And Ingrid. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was amazing. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie slash Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie dash Millman. And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com.